0: Our
1: breakfast.
0: Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Wrap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8:30am.
2: <laughs> Good morning, everybody. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Today is the 23rd of October. and We want to start the show with an acknowledgement that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation.
3: We'd like to pay respect to the Elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation
0: and settlement.
4: We also recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
0: Current efforts to establish treaties are diminished by the Victorian state government's decision to disregard First Nations sovereignty. Mm. Um, we kind
3: of just, uh, heads up, we kind of added the last bit as we are currently, Victoria, the Victorian state government is currently in the treaty process with First Nations mob. However, mm. there have been significant critique seeing as Victorian government has refused to recognise sovereignty over land and waters in Victoria and continue to kind of be deaf to the concerns raised by the Indigenous community, mm. um, which you will have obviously be hearing raised here at 3CR, mm. but we thought it was important to kind of put it into our acknowledgement to recognise that we, we have this ritual that, uh, of acknowledgement that we're kind of, Australia's bringing more and more into their culture, but at the same time, the processes that we're trying to do to, you know, improve that in our legislative functions are still being diminished by the fact that mm. we're not actually recognising sovereignty. So, mm. I don't know, two steps forward, one step back mm. kind of thing. Well, Half a step um, forward. Mm. Yeah, let's keep
2: that in mind as we, we do our show this week. Hopefully next week we'll be speaking to um, Professor Gary Foley mm-hmm. um, more generally about the the importance of, in, in, in this particular interview, we'll be talking about um, solidarity between Indigenous people in here in so-called Australia and Indigenous people over in Palestine, mm-hmm. and um, it, we'll be having interesting conversations on that um, that next week. Um, and I just want that to kind of uh, maybe colour the things that we're talking about today as well. I don't know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, Keep it all in mind. <laughs> he- hello, everyone. Wednesday breakfast. My name's Will.
0: I'm Edwin. I'm Jess, and I'm Lois.
2: And uh, we're missing Rob for the next few weeks. Hope you mm. have a have a good break, Rob. Um, mm, take how have we all been?
3: I've been thinking about this actually leading up to this, because mm. <laughs> every week we get here and we're like, what, what? did I do in the week? <laughs> and it's it really fascinating how memory just kind of fails you yeah. when called upon. <laughs> yes.
2: Are you telling me that you can't remember? Um,
3: I can remember watching um, When They See Us mm-hmm. on Netflix. Mm. Mm. I can remember the fact that I've started Stranger Things. Oh. I'm way behind the curb. Right, right. Um, Lots of TV. Then. Oh, yeah, lo- well, I've finished university, <laughs> so <laughs> lots of TV. Mm-hmm. I also know that I've been taking a lot of photos of my garden. <laughs> uh
1: nice.
3: uh and then I've been showing a lot of people photos of my garden, mm. but they're not as excited as I am to see the photos <laughs> of my Aww. garden. Like, Look at my Ixias. So and they're like, mm. "Yeah." Show me photos of your garden. Sure, I'm thank you. To see that. <laughs>
2: um, how about you, two, Jess?
1: Yeah. Lois? No,
4: I actually had. I can remember something that's quite memorable. <laughs> oh. Yesterday, I went to the sa- I went to Safety Beach with my friends, and we did a rubbish pickup, and it was so lovely. Like we just oh. went out, we went for a swim, and then we did a rubbish pickup, and it was it that's was great. Cute. Yeah.
2: So Strong. You and your friends
4: are cute. yeah. Job. We yeah we loved it. it good, and good friendship. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, it was very. That's cool. great. I
0: like rubbish yeah. pickups. Yeah. I've seen there's someone in my neighbourhood who goes for jogs and picks up rubbish, oh, and okay. there's a word for this. I can't remember what it is though, mm. so, um, which I think is great. It's hero. A local hero. hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah, my week's good. I'm busy with uni at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, this week's my last week of class, and then I've got a few projects to to get out of the way, and then I'm free mm-hmm. on holidays. Right.
3: Freedom. Yeah. So, and that, that's actually reflected in kind of the upcoming weeks we've got. We've mm-hmm. got a lot of really cool interviews coming up mm. from kind of, yeah, yeah, in, the, in the coming weeks, yeah.
2: And uh, you'll have to tune into Wednesday Breakfast every Wednesday morning <laughs> at 7am for that, so uh, stay tuned. Can we talk about what's happening on today's show? Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Well, first up, we're going to be speaking to Izzy Roberts-Or, who is the Artistic Director of the Digital, Digital Writers Festival. You folks may already know of the Emerging Writers Festival. This is their um, their entirely online child, Mm. um, making it really accessible for people who can't afford to go to a lot of those events in person. Um, whether it's the cost of public transport or transport to to the actual festival or whether it's the cost of the tickets themselves. A lot of these events that are happening for the Digital Writers Festival are free or very cheap, and that's quite exciting. And they're all online, so um, we'll be talking a bit more about that with the artistic director. And then um, next up at 7.30?
4: Yeah, so at 7.30 we're speaking to Scott Jordan from the Bob Brown Foundation. He's actually spoken before. Mm-hmm. We spoke to him about a... Britain Mills acquiring a mill to log land in the Tarkine region in Tasmania. So the Bob Brown Foundation is campaigning to make that the Tarkine region a World Heritage site and National Park by 2020. But there's been a lot of protests on at the moment because um, Forestry Tasmania is um, letting logging go through. So we're just going to speak to him about that and Mm -hmm. updates on the protests this week.
2: Alrighty, and then uh, next up we'll be listening back to uh, Asia Pacific Currents. They did a great interview with a uh, human rights um, advocate, um, whose name I will tell you later, um, <laughs> okay. about the popular protests happening in Iraq, and um, it'll be great to cover those a little bit more. Um, and then after that?
0: At 8 a.m., um, we'll be doing a phone interview with Heather Kirkpatrick, who is the director and producer of a new documentary called Against Our Oath, Um, It's a film that looks at what's happening in offshore detention and how Australian border security is stopping medical practitioners from working in line with their professional ethics. Mm. Mm. And then finishing off at 8.12,
3: we're going to have Lakina Thompson, who's coming up to actually calling in from Queensland uh, about the First Nation protests that are happening up in Devon Creek, mm. which, uh, I didn't know this, have been going on since January the 27th. Mm. Obviously prior to that, but they've actually been occupying space since the 27th up nice. at Devon Creek. Yeah. So is going to tell us a little bit about, yeah, what, what's kind of going on there.
2: We've got a packed show for you on Wednesday breakfast. Stay tuned. Next up is Alternative News. Some folks know about
0: Okay, so alternative news today starts in Australia. Um, we're following up on the parliamentary e-petition, Declare a Climate Emergency, which closed last week with around 370,000 signatures. It's a big number and more than three times um, the number of the last record e-petition which helped to remove the GST or menstrual products so it will be interesting to see whether the numbers of signatures will lead to any action from the government the e-petition closed just one day after the government voted against a motion to declare a climate emergency by Greens MP Adam Brand and which was also supported by Labour in the crossbench mm. and then moving away from Australia, um, over the weekend in Chile, large scale protests have begun because of an increase in public transport costs The protests quickly worsened with looting, vandalism, and fires. Deaths have been reported. The last I read was 12. In response, the Chilean president, Sebastián Piñera, declared an emergency, put curfews in place, and ordered the military to restore order. The president also got rid of the increase in public transport costs, but the protests are still grow- going and growing. From what I've read, it seems like the spike in the transport costs was the tipping point for many Chileans, particularly students, whose dissatisfaction with rising inequalities has been growing for some years. Um, Looking to Lebanon in the Middle East, in Beirut, uh, hundreds of thousands of protesters are rallying in the city today for a seventh day, even after the Lebanese government approved a package of economic reforms. The protests began due to rapidly declining, um, due to a rapidly declining economy, political corruption and insecurity because of the civil war in neighbouring Syria. One of the reforms the government agreed to is a 50% reduction in salary for past and current politicians and the establishment of an uh, anti-corruption panel. Um, these two protests is really big, and they add to the list of protests that are happening globally, or for different reasons. In Barcelona, Spain, um, there are a lot of protests linked to the independence movement of Catalonia. And I just wanted to throw it out there, what everyone thinks of these protests and what they understand about, to see what they understand about why these people are rallying around the world.
4: Yeah, so firstly, I'd just like to say, I was actually in Lebanon a few months ago, and one of the things, I read an article the other day, um, the people, Lebanese people, are trying to reclaim their public spaces, and I felt that was really interesting because when I was there, it was there was quite a lack of public spaces in the urban, because it, it is quite a densely urbanised city, Beirut. You know, they've had problems in the past with sort of rubbish piling up and this sort of like social like structures falling apart, and um, I just thought it was really interesting because there's even on beaches they're all privatised, and it's quite evident how um, the the privatization sort of comes hand in hand with sort of corruption in that sort of... I may be seeking out of line here, but, you know, it's, it's quite evident. And, you know, um, they've... I they also saw an article on Al Jazeera claiming um, the people are asking we want you know we need to be checking the politicians bank accounts like you know this is where the, the root of the problems like that mm. this is where it's starting sort of thing so just on the scale of things like looking at what the people want and even the fires in Lebanon like this is what sort of triggered these um protests you know it's just um a f- lots of different you know it's all quiet and even the way that the Lebanese government is structured um it's It's always been such a, a quite not a mess, but quite hard for them to, you know, be able to work within themselves to get what the people want, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. You know, it's just Mm. quite, yeah, like, you know, people asking for these simple, they seem so simple, yet it comes to a point where Mm. it's like, well, this is what we want, and then the government's like, oh, no. Yeah, give us a month <laughs> and we'll, you know, fix it sort of thing. But, yeah.
3: Yeah, the, the commentary I've seen is obviously uh, these, this rising escal- like escalation mm. of tensions comes out of product of a huge yes. list of long-term yes. grievances, yes. short-term grievances. It's been, grievances. Piling, up for, it's been piling up forever. Yeah. And um, that that's some of the weird things I've also been seeing on Facebook, which mm. is historically terrible at covering this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but a lot of people are coming out and going, hey, 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 no, it's not just this one thing. It's no. mm-hmm. not just A, it's uh-huh. this entire alphabet of yeah. causes and problems. And that is enough is enough at some mm-hmm. point. So it's kind of interesting to see, yeah, that that, that that recognition of, hey, don't don't just focus on one issue no. currently mm-hmm. happening, let's let's contextualize this. Yeah. And that's actually thankfully coming through, I think. Yeah,
2: yeah in the Indonesian context, mm-hmm. Al Jazeera, mm-hmm. unusually for, for yeah. a major news organization, <laughs> yeah. actually pointed out this trend when it Mm -hmm. comes to reportage of mass protests, Mm -hmm. that Uh, in Indonesia's case it was reported by the Australian media, Mm -hmm. by BBC, Mm -hmm. by CNN, that these were protests against the sex laws Mm -hmm. that were coming in as the sort of a raft of new legislation brought in by the second term of Jokowi's presidency, which is starting soon. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is, sorry, this is the end of his last presidency, rather. Um, And... Uh, so the the theme was these, all the people are protesting against these laws which regulate the ways in which people are allowed to have mm, sex mm. and um, that was all very sort of scandalous for Western mm, readers. Mm. But then um, Al Jazeera comes in and of course like Coconut and other sort of Indonesia-based yeah. journals, um, um, journalism institutions yeah, come out and. Uh, say that actually there's a there, there may have been an inciting incident or an inciting um, mm. aspect to whatever's happening in, in a certain protest mm. movement, but actually it's a broader concern mm. about government corruption and, mm. and overreach of government in terms of um, regulating people's personal lives and things like that.
4: Yeah. Historically, uh, it's just always been, mm. you know, in the media, wow, it's like here, this is it, this is yeah, now, but yeah. it often doesn't give a background yeah. Yeah. Mm. because it obviously isn't covered mm. when it's needed to be. So Whether it's the smaller things that may not seem know, so important for the media, putting a
2: putting a levy on WhatsApp and on yeah, or the exactly, the yeah. fare uh-huh. in Chile or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's a really interesting point because if you're going to, um, I think if a journalist really does the homework and analyzes why uh, rallies are taking place, it can't usually besti- be distilled into two quick little sentences, <laughs> um, which uh, one instigating moment like changes in in public transport costs or a new um mm. law that um impedes people's sexual liberty or whatever mm. Mm. can be
2: that's very interesting <laughs> and you know where you can hear in-depth conversations on 3cr community radio go to 3cr.org.au <laughs> and listen to any of our shows um all of them are audio on demand if you just click on the show page mm. uh we're going to have a song just quickly before we throw to our first interview of the day this is hace uh, ya 500 años which is a uh indigenous protest song sung in this case by the community of Chimborazo in Ecuador. Listening to 3CR Community Radio. Uh, right now, we're going to throw to an interview about the Digital Writers Festival. Uh, if you're wondering what a Writers Festival is, then I, I suppose we'll also cover that into, in the interview. Conversations about writing, conversations with writing, interacting with um, writers. Writers Festival. That's what it is. <laughs> it's a festival about writing. Um, what's a Digital Writers Festival? It's a festival that happens online. And so uh, we're speaking to. Artistic Director Izzy Roberts, or about the Digital Writers Festival, which is coming up very soon, it starts on the 29th. Izzy, good morning. Good morning, Will. Thanks for joining us on 3CR. Thanks
5: so much for having me.
2: Wonderful. Um, so f- the Digital Writers Festival brands brands itself as um, dedicated to making conversations around writing craft more accessible. Um, so this kind of puts it in a contrast to regular writers' events. Can you, can you tell us a bit about how regular writers' events work and how the Digital Writers' Festival shake, um, aims to shake that up?
5: Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, the Digital Writers' Festival is, uh, explores what happens when technology and storytelling collide. Um, and part of that for us is we also, so we're the Emerging Writers' Festival producing the Digital Writers' Festival, if you will. So the same organization that runs EWF every June in winter here in Melbourne. Um, and so essentially, you know, a regular Writers' Festival, There are events that you show up to in person. It might be that you go to a reading at a bar or, you know, you go along to a panel session at the library or something like that. Um, and part of that, though, is obviously you have to be able to attend in person, and that has to be a particular way of engaging that works for you, um, whereas the Digital Writers Festival is happening online, all in the digital space. So even the events, we've got two events that are kind of IRL in real life, but both of those events are being live-streamed as well, and we don't preference the uh, in-person audience over our digital audience. Um, so it's very much about uh, folks, for example, who might live outside of a uh, metro centre like Melbourne, uh, being able to access the community and the information that, you know, we're putting out there into the world. Uh, and there might be other reasons that people prefer to engage online as well. So yeah, that's kind of the crux of it.
2: Mm. And so in on the theme of accessibility, there's also an encouragement for people to be involved in the festival. Can you tell us a bit about the, the writing prompts?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So we run a microfiction challenge as part of the Digital Writers Festival with Swinburne. And every day of the festival, we'll be releasing a different prompt. It's a one-word prompt. And i can not tell you what they are yet. Um, <laughs> and essentially, the challenge is to set yourself the task of writing a piece of fiction that is less than 500 words. Um, and we release the prompt at about 9 o'clock every day. Uh, and you've got kind of almost 24 hours to get your prompt, your response in, and you can enter every single day of the festival if you want to. So there's five chances to win the thousand dollar prize.
2: Mm. Now sticking to the theme of accessibility, I noticed that quite a lot of the um, quite a lot of the events were free, which is quite in sharp contrast to those sort of one-off writers' events where you get a visiting writer. Coming into Melbourne, um, so you have to come and see them in person, and also they happen during weekdays and they're quite expensive, um, which doesn't seem to, to work for a lot of writers who, you know, for example, rely on day jobs and things like that. So, um, was that was that part of the the planning at the outset?
5: Absolutely, and that's something that um, kind of is really at the core of our organisation. We really try to keep across the Emerging Writers Festival in June as well. Um, we know that writers don't earn a lot of money I'm a writer myself (laughs) outside of this is my day job um so you know I kind of understand we all understand that um you know the uh, trying to afford uh tickets is a really big pressure on people and it's also you know art should be for everyone it's fundamentally uh, a core part of what EWF is trying to do with the Digital Writers Festival. So we do have a couple of ticketed things, but they're all like the most expensive ticket is $15. Mm. Um, you know, so it's... um, And the reason that uh, some things cost a little bit more money is that they're, um, you know, there's, we've got some seminars that um, people are, you know, engaging with, which is professional development that we um, have to, you know, pay our artists for accordingly as well. Absolutely. So... Yeah, and the physical events that we've got, it's funny trying to find the language for this, IRL events may be a better (laughs) word, Um, goes to the Digital Age. Um, That one is ticketed, but it's $10, and it's got 10 performers, so... That's a fantastic one on the Friday night, and if the $10 is not affordable for folks, they can live stream it for free.
2: Mm. Can we talk a bit more about the delivery of the festival? Because um, some people listening may not be really familiar with a digital, digital festival. We live in Melbourne. We're aware of festivals generally as institutions, um, but a digital festival, like what, what what's the delivery method? Are we listening to podcasts? Is it articles?
5: It's a bit of a combination, and it's a funny one because uh, I get asked this question every year, and it's it changed every year since um, I've been running the festival. Um, like, kind of the question of what even is a quote-unquote digital festival changes every year. Um, and it's interesting because I think, you know, festival generally, right, points to something that uh, involves a temporary community. People come together for a short period of time. It's finite. It's ephemeral. Uh, and it sort of, like, occurs and pops up, and then it's over. Whereas the Digital Writers' Festival, um, it does have an element of that, but there's also an archive, which is quite different to, um, you know, the aforementioned going mm. to a pub to see some poets speak.
2: Yeah, when things um, go online, they never really disappear.
5: Absolutely, and that's something that we're um, exploring through the program as well, um, but, yeah, I guess uh, in terms of the modes of delivery, we are releasing a podcast uh, yet again this year, but something that's slightly different is it will be sessions from the Emerging Writers Festival predominantly. So we've recorded a whole bunch of the stuff that was happening as part of our main festival in June, and we're then putting that out so that people who weren't able to attend or aren't based in Melbourne can access that information. Um, and then we've also got... Seminars. So the seminars are kind of they're the, the ticketed events. So we've got – I'm really – one of the most exciting ones to me is Mitra Kaboli, who is one of the original team members of the Heart podcast, um, is coming to teach from the States, which is pretty wild. Um, and then we've also got a digital storytelling workshop and a um, Surrealist Writing with Manisha Anjali workshop. And so they are happening through your computer, basically. So you can be at home – You log into a program called GoToWebinar and, you know, interact with the person teaching in that way. Um, And then finally, we've kind of got uh, live streams, which are happening through our YouTube channel and kind of digital experiments that happen on a range of different platforms. Um, And that's sort of dependent on what
2: the project is that's being launched. Fantastic. Does that make any sense? It, it does, it does. There's just, there's just so many different ways that we can spaces. access this, but I feel like um, we might direct people to the website in just a moment because I, it, that sounds like that's the, the first jumping off point. That but before is we absolutely do, can, can you <laughs> tell us about the, the horrible goose that will be joining us?
5: Oh, I'm very excited to announce that um, uh, Jake Strasser, wonderful team member of House House, uh, Melbourne based. Uh, game design studio, who we should all be very proud of because they're the masterminds behind the viral sensation that is Untitled Goose Game, uh, will be in conversation with uh, comedian and founder of The Toast, Daniel Mallory Ortberg, talking about the collaborative game design processes that they've employed to create this wonderful game.
2: Fantastic. So it's for gamers as well. Uh, where should people head if they want to access uh, the Digital Writers' Festival from the 29th
5: Twenty nineteen dot com. It's all there, it's a huge program, um, and hopefully everyone enjoys navigating it.
2: I will, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I've been speaking to Izzy Roberts Orr, who is the digital, sorry, the artistic director of the Digital Writers Festival. Izzy, thank you for joining us.
5: Thanks so much for having me, Will.
2: You're listening to three CR Community Radio. We're going to throw to a song real quick. This is Cordillera by Alex Anvanter. And that was Codillera by Alex Anvanter, who is a Chilean artist. We played that because, um, Codillera is a song about the, uh, the Pinochet dictatorship and its, uh, sort of lingering hold on Chilean society.
4: Great. Yeah. So I actually really like those songs. Well Thank done. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Not that I wouldn't anyway, but okay. <laughs> um, so now we're going to speak to Scott Jordan. Uh Scott's from the Bob Brown Foundation. We actually spoke to Scott a few months ago about the logging of the Tarkine region in Tasmania with the acquisition of a milling site by Britain's Timber. Uh, this was quite con- controversial because taxpayers would be providing for this logging, so we we'll just spoke to him about that. Um, since we did last week, though, protests had taken place against the logging of the Tarkine, and they've heightened this week and last. So just to background, the Bob Brown Foundation works to take action to protect Australia's nature, which has such an important ecological and global significance. The Bob Brown Foundation has been campaigning to recognise the Tarkine as a national park and world heritage site by 2020. Um, Tasmania's State Forest Authority renamed um, Sustainable Timbers Tasmania plans to start logging immediately, and this has brought a wave of protests last week and this. Um, on the 20th to, uh, 20th of this month, October, two conservationists climbed into tree sits, which came after Josh Nichols was arrested for tree sitting the previous Friday. Protester Andy Zelosi was also arrested yesterday afternoon for tree sitting. Thanks for joining us this morning, Scott. Uh, thank you. Um, now, I know you must be incredibly busy at the Foundation, so thank you for coming on today. Um, before we get into the details of the protest, though, can you just give a quick rundown on the importance of the Tarkheim?
6: The, the, the Tarkine is an incredible um, natural place. It's, uh, it contains about 180,000 hectares of, of ancient rainforest and um, our state government, through their, their logging agency, uh, they call Sustainable Timbers Tasmania. We prefer to call it Suspicious Timbers Tasmania. Um, they, they plan to go in and, and clear fill areas within that. In fact. There's 52 coops scheduled in the current three-year plan, and coop can be anything from from 15 hectares right up to 80 hectares. Mm. And so, for the last three years, we've been camped at um, places in the Tarkine, mostly at the, the Franklin River area and the Sumac uh, area in the Tarkine, and we've held a peaceful uh, vigil protest to to prevent the logging of those areas. Um, the Government this year has obviously chosen to to remove us, and so they've come in uh, a week after we've established this season's um, protest camp and and had us a forcibly removed and and since then we've been mounting uh, a rolling protest of of people entering the site uh, moving into tree sits or being on the ground and putting themselves at at risk of arrest to defend these beautiful ancient forests. Mm
4: -hmm. Um, Actually and I saw yesterday that police have actually now been present at the blockade do you think it's really necessary do you think it's got to the point where it's necessary for police to be there or what are your thoughts on that?
6: Look it's it's Simply isn't necessary for police to be there. Um, firstly, these forests just shouldn't be logged. No. Um, these are forests that, that not only are, deserve to exist just for their own right. I mean, they're, they're habitat for a range of threatened species they they provide ecological services in the landscape and and we simply don't need the wood um we have more than enough plantation um to provide our wood supply but but in this age of climate change what the the ipcc report from two months ago tells us that we have to immediately stop um logging of native forest and we have to rapidly restore areas of previously logged degraded forest because the the planet simply um, can't can 't cope with the amount of logging that 's happening and it 's after um, fossil fuels it 's the biggest contributor to um, global warming and and their their view was very strongly that if we want to meet our two degree target um, we, we have to immediately end the logging of these areas mm-hmm. what we 're seeing at the moment is um, sustainable timbers Tasmania and the Tasmanian government realizing they 're losing the, the the public hearts and minds on this issue mm-hmm. and so their response is to send in police to to remove protesters and stop mm-hmm. these images getting out to the world.
4: Yeah, no, it's obvious that um, power of the people is really getting to them when um, they have to bring the police, you know, for that. It's quite obvious. Um, you said that um, with the statistics that you just mentioned with the two degrees, um, do you think that the Premier is listening to this at all or have you? is there any evidence that he's this is going through or is it just... Oh, quite obviously because they're going they're going through with it. Have you made any progress with trying to get to authorities or?
6: Look, we we've had uh quite a few years of trying to convince our, our Premier and our state government that this is a this is a foolish way to go forward mm-hmm. and it's not in Tasmania's interest and certainly not in the world's interest. Um he he has come to power on a on a platform of, you know, he will push through, you know. Um, development in in our native forests uh, he 'll back in logging industry and he 'll back in um, forward drive tracks through mm. um, sacred aboriginal sites on the coast mm. so Unfortunately, our current state government is hell bent on finding any possible way to to damage our our wild and natural places yeah. and you know we we need as much pressure on him um, both within tasmania but also from from the wider. Um, global community, that this is not acceptable, and and what happens in Tasmania matters across the world.
4: Mm, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking, and it's even more heartbreaking to see individuals seeking protest by by tree sitting, as like clearly the authorities do not want to listen, and it's sort of like a last cry for help. What are your thoughts on protesters actually climbing the trees and tree sitting throughout this campaign? Like, what has the Bob Brown Foundation said about this?
6: Look, I, I think it's been an incredibly powerful. Um, Medium for getting the message out to the world. Have mm-hmm. somebody sitting up in those treetops, um, broadcasting, you know, the the footage of, of the sun rising through the rainforest, mm-hmm. of of the bird calls through that forest, and showing the life that exists in that place. And and physically being there is a is a barrier to the logging of these areas. Um, I have incredible admiration for the people that go up these trees. Mm-hmm. They spend many hours training to be to be able to to safely do it and um, you know, we, we all owe them a, a great debt of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the, you know, um, they don't just climb a tree on their own. There's a support crew that goes in with them and ensures that they're safe. There, there's, there's a whole bunch of people that, that rally around to make, um, you know, that, that tree sitter's statement um, resonate and, and, and get out to the world. And so it, there's, there's a, a, a good, strong... Uh, commitment by a lot of volunteers and the, and the phones ringing every day and people wanting to come and join and, and take part in it. Mm. And, and we're expecting this summer to to hold them out um, of these forests you know, as best we
4: can. Definitely. And have they actually set a date to when they want to start logging or is it, would they start then and now if you guys left right now? Would they, would you sus- like suspect that they would start now or? Well,
6: we think they're being a little cagey with us. They've told us they need us to, to leave that area of forest and they've now gated it off and closed the road um, before the actual logging coop um, to prevent us from being camped outside of it. Um, they, they've indicated to us they need us out for planning purposes. Mm-hmm. Um we fail to see how you can't go in and do planning and, and fauna surveys and anything else you believe you need to do mm-hmm. with people camped outside mm-hmm. that forest exactly. showing the public what it is that, that you're planning on logging. Um, we believe it's more likely that in the next few weeks, um, in fact, even could be the next few days, we will see bulldozers moving in to start the roading mm-hmm. and from there the logging will occur. And so we're, we're not resting. We're not. Um, we're not going to to stand by and watch this happen and so we will continue to mobilise people out into those forests and, and to, to tell its, its story to the world.
4: Mm, definitely it's super unreal as well like i wish i was down there right now in tassie supporting you guys um you did say before um on that matter with the authorities you know if they could just get their bulldozers in there get their hands on it um that so this tasmania state forest authority is now renamed sustainable timbers tasmania you said before they should be suspicious timbers tasmania um do you think they have any claim to use sustainable in their name look absolutely
6: not they are they are logging um Ancient old-growth forests in, in a time of climate change. At a time when, um, you know, people in the industry are saying, you know, they don't need this timber, that it's it's um, a product that markets overseas have have rejected clearly, and and we saw the the huge. Um, wood chipping company, Guns Limited, go go to the wall and then go into bankruptcy mm. only a few short years ago as a result of them losing um, markets who come to customers simply saying, we don't want to buy your wood chip if it's coming from um, old ancient forests. Mm. And so we, we are seeing that the, the markets are saying we don't want it, the public is saying we don't want it, and there's a, there's a handful of... Um, native forest sawmills and, and mostly the wood chip industry. In fact, 85% of what will come out of these coops will go straight into wood chips. And so we are seeing those people, largely you know, funded by public subsidy, the logging of these forests actually costs the taxpayer money.
1: Mm-hmm. We're
6: selling it to the wood chippers for less than the cost of cutting the trees down. And so we, we are seeing this recalcitrant end of the industry who's happy to take um, timber from these forests while it comes with a big fat government subsidy. Mm -hmm. And and it simply makes no moral sense, it makes no economic sense, and it certainly makes no environmental sense. Mm.
4: It's pure greed, really. Um, So obviously this has affected your mission to get the Tarkine acknowledged as a national park and um, World Heritage site by 2020. Um, Is there... Is it what's how are you feeling at the Bob Brown Foundation about this like do you think there's still hope to get this underway or will it could it still happen whilst logging occurs like what's the situation there We I mean, we we're, we're very optimistic that okay,
6: yeah. we know at some point the Tarkine will become a national park and a mm-hmm. world heritage area it's a it's an area that has um been recommended on numerous occasions there's been campaigns to defend this area and have it have it put into um that top level of protection um over many decades and so we're, we're optimistic it will happen we know the public's on side. every poll we've ever done has, has showed us clear majority support for this to happen mm-hmm. um unfortunately we've, we've got to live through this current government and and hopefully see a government returned in tasmanians prepared to make these decisions mm-hmm. um and so we'll continue to ramp up pressure, we'll continue to put pressure on to the, the, the Premier and, and his government and, and let them know that you know, this, this course of action will, will cost you um, government at some point.
4: Yeah, definitely. You, you at the Foundation, the protesters and the conservationists are doing such an amazing job. What can we do here in Melbourne though, to get involved and help the cause for the Tarkine whilst these protests continue?
6: Look, there's a number of things people can do. And firstly, of course, if people have got the time and and they want to be part of it, then make contact with the Bob Brown Foundation and 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 lend your your physical support to being down on the ground. And and we can certainly use you in a number of support roles. Or um, you know, if if people are wanting to take part in protests on the site, we can we, are, we certainly got got places <laughs> for people in our team. Um, as well as that obviously the sorts of campaigns cost money. Mm-hmm. Um, we we need donations. Uh, people can donate um, to the Bob Brown Foundation through our website at, at www.bobbrown.org.au. Mm-hmm. And and I guess the final thing is, is you know, our federal government doesn't get off the hook with this either. Our federal government um, did sign the Regional Forest Agreement um, or re-signed it uh, over the last few years. and And so this... Agreement will lock in the logging of these forests for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so um, people outside of Tasmania who are, are unable to get down here and physically take part in the campaign here um, can certainly be, be calling their federal members. They can be um, making appointments to go and see them. Um, all our federal members of the parliament, no matter what party they're from, need to understand that this area should not be logged and, and that Australians will stand up against it.
4: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Scott. Thank you. If you would like to find out more support or donate for the preservation of the Tarkine region, head to www.bobbrown.org.au.
2: You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Next up, we're going to play Baif, which is sung by Mashrut Leila.
5: a 3CR supporter.
7: Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding or volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40 minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training. So go to nablyride.com to contact us
3: about volunteering. A 3CR supporter.
2: You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Next up, we're going to listen back to Asia-Pacific Currents. Pierre Morrow speaks to human rights campaigner Mustafa Awad about the recent popular government pro- uh, anti-government protests in Iraq. Let's listen in.
7: Was there a particular reason why the protest started earlier this um, month, or was it just an in- a question of increasing anger?
8: The right answer would start with uh, with saying something like this is another wave of the arab spring so we should connect uh, the dots to back to the events in 2010 starting from tunisia and then egypt syria libya and so on this is an organic wave as well what's behind it is quite complex and there are many reasons and in summary We know what started in 2003 when the United States decided to invade Iraq and ultimately occupy the country. The state, the military, the army was dissolved and the country ended up in chaos. This vacuum was filled by some local or state powers uh, from Iran, from uh, the backed Shia militia, some Sunni militia were, of course, uh, backed by the West, some Sunni proxies. Like Saudi Arabia and uh, some of the Gulf states, uh, the Kurds, of course, the Kurds were in the in the north. So it's quite complex, and the protest was is absolutely directed to the failure, the failure of the state-created cri- economical crisis, unemployment, uh, failure of state institutions, and so on. So th- this is pretty much what's behind the scene or what's under the surface. What triggered this was a recent protest in Egypt, actually. Some Egyptians decided to protest against their own government. That was back in April. And at the same time, some Iraqi, actually, some Iraqis started saying on, on social media, oh, look, E-E- Egyptians are not better than us. We should, be, they have done something. We should do the same. And this is where all, or this is the trigger, of course. It's not because like one instance, I would say it's rather accumulated set of events that actually led to the to the current protest. It's not just one event, and it's not isolated, of course.
7: Yes, we we were wondering whether this was part and connected to the whole upheaval of the region of from the Arab Spring, you know, going from 2011. And, and like you said, in Iraq, there's other issues connected with the 203 invasion by the United States. In other countries, we have seen that a lot of these huge protests, there weren't very many groups that were organising uh, these protests. Was that the same in Iraq, or there are actually community political pressure groups that are organising these protests?
8: It's actually organic. What's interesting about the, this protest is Iraq is an exceptional country when it comes to the revolutionary voice, as, as we say, because it's very different from, from Egypt or Tunisia. Iraq is composed from different ethnic groups and different sects, as you know. You've got Shiites in the south, you've got Sunnis in the middle, you've got Kurds in, in the north. And even how the government was uh, was formed since 2003 was a reflection of uh, of this sectarian balance, if we have to say something like this. Of course, there is some militias, some political parties with different loyalties. Some of them were going towards Iran, some of them were going towards the West, some of them Sunnis-orientated. The Kurds, was, they've got their own self-managed province in in the north but what's been happening is you've got all these political parties with self-serving interests they haven't really succeeded in actually getting things actually forward since 2003 so people just lay people without sectarian loyalty like because most people saying look the sunnis cannot revolt because of the shias and the shias could not revolt because of the sunnis there will be a civil war and this is not what we're seeing here the, the people on the ground are Sunnis and Shias, and they're actually revolting against the status quo, against their, their government and the local, local governments in the provinces as well. So it's, it's pretty much a very, an organic movement. It's a grassroots. It's people, just to lay people in the street, saying enough for corruption, enough. Uh, Iraq is a wealthy country. People should have a bigger share in power and wealth.
7: When I saw the protest erupting uh, in Baghdad and then in in the other major cities it reminded me of the huge working class protest in Basra over the last uh, few years and they were also about the fact of economic and the social services that were not working so do you think there is a a link with those uh, issues as well?
8: Absolutely. But look, the social class, the working class is leading pretty much the way since the start. And the thing is, the attributes of the Arab Spring is, it was like waves. Back in Egypt, if we really need to understand the event in 2011, we have to go back to some protests in Mahalla. The, the working class were protesting against the ruling class elites back in 2008. In Iraq, it was pretty much the same. What has been unfolded in past in 2008 will definitely have to be connected to what's happening now. It's the same cause, the same people on the ground and ultimately the same aspirations.
7: To outside observers, what was probably um, quite shocking was the very swift response by the Iraqi government and the brutal response. In just a few days, I think over 100 people were killed, hundreds injured right. and 100 arrested, if not thousands. Why was the repression just so strong and so brutal? Of course, it's not the most
8: brutal response or crackdown on a movement or revolutions. I think... So far the Syrian example was the worst since 2011 back in Tunisia back in Egypt uh, there was of course some violence Uh, people died but of course if we have to get some figures and numbers still the uh, Iraqi uh, casualties is quite high and significant but this is of course it reflects the nature of the Iraqi state unlike unlike Egypt unlike Tunisia if we if we have to look at the Iraqi society it is composed from a lot of ethnic groups, a lot of sects, and this reflects on the Iraqi politics as well. You've got a lot of people, uh, of course, with loyalty to, to the government, from the, especially from the Shia side. You've got an Iranian-backed militia. You've got the al al-Shaabi, a Shia militia, loyalty to the government. All these groups, of course, and the Sunnis and the Kurds as well, these groups got a political and economical interest. And they've got an interest in in cracking on the on the movement so most of the violence has been perpetrated by these Iranian or the sunnis or the uh, government backed militia it's not connected to the Iraqi army or the Iraqi police directly but it's still everyone is trying to protect their political and their economical interests. They're trying to protect this, the very complex status score because if the Iraqi demands are met, of course a lot of people will be out of power and this will be upsetting for a lot of the groups on the ground
7: you've really explained it well and tied it in, into the historical context and, and obviously if the demands for jobs no corruption uh, better pay and, and conditions happen a lot of people in government and those connected would lose a lot so as a last question where to now uh, in Iraq and for the protest movement obviously the, the, this impulse like or this wave of, as you call that has been pacified but do you think it will have lasting effects?
1: Look, pretty
8: much like all what we've been witnessing since 2010, since what, what happened in Tunisia. The Arab Spring, Iraq, Egypt, Tunisia, you will find the revolution and counter-revolutions. You will find a phase where actually things has been specified a bit and things actually will turn on. As long as we have the causes in the ground, people will move. The thing is, People have seen the model exactly, and this model has been successful in countries like Tunisia, Sudan, and to some degree in in Algeria. I hope it works well for them, but we're seeing something unfolding. And the same things apply to all Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, or even in Jordan, or even any of the Gulf states. It's a revolution, and it will take its time. It's not just an isolated event, and it This movement will have to lead to something ultimately in the future. People will not stop until their demands are fulfilled. This is just the course of history.
7: Thank you um, for that good explanation, Mustafa, and uh, we'll certainly keep abreast on what's happening. We've certainly covered uh, these uh, events over the last six, seven, eight years quite a lot, and we'll certainly um, keep doing it in the future. So thank you very much.
8: It will be my pleasure to talk to you tonight.
2: Thanks. That was Pierre Moro of Asia Pacific Currents speaking to human rights campaigner Mustafa Awad about the recent popular government protests in Iraq. You can listen to more Asia Pacific Currents every Saturday morning at 9am on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, Asia Pacific Currents is produced by Australian Asia Worker Links.
0: Next, we'll be speaking with Heather Kirkpatrick, director of Waratah Films. She's going to talk to us about her new documentary, Against Our Oath. The film looks at what's happening in detention on Manus and Nauru and the ethical conflict between politics and medical professionals trying to care for patients who are asylum seekers. Before we begin, I'd like to warn listeners that this discussion may contain sensitive content about the conditions and experiences of people in offshore detention. Good morning, Heather. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Yeah, good morning, Alice. Can you please tell us a bit about this documentary and your involvement in it as director and producer?
9: Sure. Look, I began making this film back in 2015 when I saw that uh, the doctors were suddenly threatened or the doctors and health professionals and other workers with, with two years jail under the Border Force Act if they spoke up about what they were seeing in detention. And at the time, a lot of the doctors and uh, health professionals around the country came out in public protest and, and that was in the media. And I thought, this is a bit of an unusual situation, you know, with doctors, these highly respected members of our community having to... Be, well, protest because they're threatened with jail. So the more I explored, I sort of saw that there was a lot of information around um, how they were able to treat patients or not in offshore settings in particular that um, hadn't been revealed. So the story ended up becoming a, a story about medical ethics that took me around the world a couple of times as well to give it some sort of uh, history of medical ethics um, beginning in... With the Hippocratic Oath in Greece, and yes, getting modernised. Yes, I, I noticed
0: again. the title does take its name from the ethical oath that physicians physicians swear by to do no harm, which can be traced exactly. back over two and a half thousand years ago to to Greece. Can you tell us a bit more about the oath and, and why you chose it as the title?
9: Well, it was um, well the oath. Yeah, like you say, I mean most people remember the the main principle in there, which is do no harm, um, and I guess. Um, What I'm showing in the film is that there is harm being done and the doctors are are explicitly stating that as well. But um, also one of the things perhaps most people may not know, unless they're a medical professional, is that at the end of World War II there was the Nuremberg uh, Medical Trial which dealt with some of the atrocities the doctors had done during World War II. And what they did is they modernised the Hippocratic Oath then. They said, we need something even better than this um and so they used some of the principles but they actually made a document or a declaration rather called the Geneva Declaration which doctors still use today and the it states a few things it's just a one page document but one of the well the guiding principle is that the patient will always be a medical professional's or a doctor's highest priority looking after their health and well-being and i guess throughout the course of my documentary I can show how the system that Australia are currently um, using for refugees offshore, asylum seekers offshore is not allowing doctors to make their patients their highest priority or for their um, requests for medical treatment to be they're not always followed. so Um, It does become this really strong ethical conflict between the medical profession and the government um, at this point.
0: And the film includes interviews with asylum seekers, including Ali um, Kaza from Syria, as well as nurses, doctors and social workers. Many health practitioners reflect on working in the detention centres when the Border Force Act was in place and speaking out about the conditions in the centres would have resulted in a two-year jail term. A health practitioner is more willing to speak out now.
9: Well, I, yeah, look, I think definitely uh, the presence of the Border Force Act when it had that secrecy provision did intimidate people. Um, and I, there's sort of a, it's a bit of a complex issue actually. Like, certainly there are a number of whistleblowers that come forward each year. But when they try to whistleblow or when they try to raise the issue when they're under contract for the government working offshore as a medical or health professional, they're soon told that they will not have another contract or that, you know, they don't have their job any longer. So you either, if you stay in the system, quite often, you know, you are complicit with the system and that is not looking after the, or putting the health and wellbeing of the patient as the priority anymore. So um, there are people who remain in the system who are very ethically conflicted, but I actually look at this issue closely in the film and it's really the situation that we're at now so that, you know, it's harder. We're probably going to see less whistleblowers come out of the system because it's been so ethically challenging in the first place to work within it. And there's a really high turnover of staff, people who come and do one contract and never come back. So there would be hundreds of people in Australia who've witnessed the system but have chosen not to be a part of it.
0: Right. And what are some of the key events that the documentary looks at that reveals the extent to which the government does intervene in medical transfers?
9: Well, I follow the last few years and I guess what was happening is that you know, the longer people are held in indefinite detention, the worse their mental health becomes. So we see that through the eyes of the psychiatrists, um, mainly psychiatrists actually, and the heads of the mental health Um, area within the health provider. Um, so we see that happen, but we also, um, sorry, I'm just coming back to your question
0: now. Oh, I just wanted Um, to know what some of the, um, the main events were that, that are in the film that show the government intervention, like with, with the the small child in, in a hospital in, in Brisbane, I think.
9: Okay, yes, no, correct. So the Lady Salento action. Uh, it's around about halfway through the film. So that was when Baby Asher was in the Brisbane hospital and the staff there said, we're not prepared to release this child to a place of harm, which the government wanted to return her and her family to Nauru. And at this stage, there was plenty of evidence to show that Nauru was a harmful environment. So... Uh, what happened is the doctors held off, they weren't prepared to discharge or they even consulted their ethics committee and the same decision was made. And so it was a 10-day standoff and the public surrounded the hospital, were checking every car that left because there were rumours um, going around that the Border Force were going to go and take her out regardless. So we had the head of the Australian Medical Association at the time, Brian Alice, speak up about this issue publicly. It was a very big event. And so that was a sort of obviously a publicly known demonstration of doctors resisting border force orders. But in my film, I've actually got more instances of this and things that have played out for four months um, that have never hit the media and doctors have chosen to finally speak up. Some of them were working within public hospitals when this happened and are now in private practice. They felt that it was the right time um, to speak up. They weren't threatened by media constrictions at previous workplace so there's a lot of that going on Um, I also used cases of late in 2018 or throughout 2017-18 because the government weren't always following the um, urgent medical transfer requests from doctors these issues ended up being taken to the federal court where they were won time and time again And it was forcing the government under court orders to transfer patients to Australia. So there was a lot of time and money being used on that. And then the
0: the Medivac bill was passed early this year. And um, that allowed asylum seekers in offshore detention to be transferred to Australia for medical treatment if two Australian doctors decided it was necessary. Um, at what stage was the creation of the documentary in when the MEDVAC bill was passed and how do you reflect on changes now that the bill is, um, look, being, the government is looking at reappealing the bill at the moment?
9: Yeah, so I guess for me, I actually was wondering when I was going to get the end to my story and I thought it would be a court case that looked at the inquest of one of the men who died offshore, Ahamid Kazai, and then suddenly, so that was about mid-2018, I was thinking that might have to be my end point. And then we suddenly had the by-election where Dr. Karen Phelps, previous um, Australian Medical Association president, was elected in in what was Malcolm Turnbull's seat, and and she proposed the Medivac law, which obviously you've just mentioned came in in February. Um, So, look, that did allow... We've seen about 131, I think, some... more than that now, but at the end of my film it was 131 people had actually been transferred using that Medivac legislation. Uh, We still have a whole lot of people who have been approved and there's some now obstacles being placed by PNG and also Nauru in in following those in following the Medivac law. They're sort of arguing they've got sovereignty rights over it, um, whereas it has been proven in court Australia has duty of care. So uh, I think there's there's definitely some legal battles being um, happening in the the backstory right now, trying and to force that for to be followed. Okay,
0: and and for people yep. who want to learn more uh, learn more about where they can see this film, this documentary that you've made, um, where can they find that information?
9: Sure. Look, if they go to the Against EOS website, they can actually um, see where a whole lot of screening events are coming up currently. There's there's many different groups hosting it in cinemas and things. Um, as well as they can watch it online. So it is accessible um, and people are choosing... A lot of medical groups are now choosing to host their own screenings as
0: well. Great. Well, thanks very much for chatting with us this morning at 3CR. Heather Kirkpatrick, director and producer of Against Our Oath, a documentary about what's happening in offshore detention and how Australian border security is stopping medical practitioners from working in line with their professional ethics. Thank you, Lois.
2: And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Stay tuned. Most LGBTIQ people
7: experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between Queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call one 542 847 With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000.
3: A 3CR supporter.
7: QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus
10: health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes,
3: hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics. On In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us
10: on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra.
3: Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
2: All right, so today on Wednesday Breakfast, which you are listening to right now, the time right now is 8.14. You may have noticed that we are playing uh, music associated with various international protest movements. Um, At the top of the show, we had... A song from some indigenous, uh, from the indigenous movement in Ecuador, which has been successful in getting the, um, the, the government there repealing, um, a, a bill that would have them further entangled into the IMF. Mm -hmm. Um, of course there were other things involved there. We were talking about how, uh, protest movements tend to get boiled down by the media to a specific point. So it's quite a wide raging protest that happened there. Uh, we also heard from a Chilean musician, uh, talking about the, uh, overhanging uh, issue of, um, Pinochet and, um, fascism in, in Chilean mainstream politics. And then we also heard from Mashru Leila, a Lebanese band, um, their song, um, Taif, which translates to ghost. was named after a, a, um, a venue in Lebanon, which was shut down for being, um, very w- welcoming and open of, um, of queer ident- queer identifying people. Um, and the song's, uh, chorus translates to, uh, the the mushrooms are growing and tomorrow we will inherit the earth so i thought that was appropriate to play in the in in context of the protests happening in lebanon um and so our final song for the day i'm going to play australia does not exist by dreaming now i don't need to explain why
10: they stepped upon sacred sands. Didn't recognize the was governance at hand. Laws and conditions not based upon demands. Tribes, clans, and families in line with sacred chants. Song lines, stories, blessing woman, child, and man. Stars, constellations, formulating plans. Bountiful plains of medicinal plants, spells beyond the physical, beating our dance. None of this dreaming unfolded by chance, but they didn't see this majesty right before their eyes. labeled us as savages and plotted out the mars, Took us star formations to represent their plot. Now realize the natural essence brought into those knots. Busy painting laws to sidestep our rocks. I our very ways to be worked out of sound, out Spotted laws, this landscape never defined in the previous 60,000 plus years. The That's it, Australia's still a scene of crime where they push inside their manners and it's blondies in there Australia
11: does not exist What yeah, they I be selling is men Australia does not exist But they keep on trying to oh, tell yeah. Australia
1: does not exist you it's straight up illegitimate Australia
10: First we'll take that land, take it for our own. Those you take a stand? We'll kneel before the throne, kneel before the crown, hands on the ground, then we'll take all the kids. Hush, don't make us sound, nothing but savages. We'll show them how they're space to live. And if they don't assimilate, I guess we'll have to demonstrate our superiority in every single way. And remind them how we've conquered them every single day. And what better way to do this than to give this land a name? Australia, yeah, the great land that was claimed. Huh? Man, it ain't gonna work. Watch us grow like flowers if we come from the dirt. The earth runs deep. Our people came just to reframe the pictures of the past, so my people know where
6: we came from. We've been here all along. See, Australia don't exist. Just another damn myth. Australia
11: does not exist. No, no, no. What they be selling is myth. Australia uh, does not exist. No, no, no. But they no, keep on trying to. Yeah.
10: They try to make it seem Australia does not exist. Just a stray painting pictures to try painting you pictures to evade the true identity of this land. It is built on legislations and false formations without true jurisdiction, propagated through mass manipulation of populations and resources. genocidal policy enforcers born in blood of our ancestors, massacres, but still sacred spirit here. Breathe in the air, true essence, delivered from our mother's womb and hands. It's always was, always will be a land of countless indigenous nations, none of which are called Australia home.
9: The is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this
0: station copies of the code are available from the 3CR website go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are
10: qr codes and LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers across eight episodes
3: hear us engaging with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code
11: and follow us on Facebook at
10: QR Code 3CR funded by the city of Yarra.
2: The time now is 8.21 and you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Shall we talk about the weather? Very engaging and exciting. Um, So, you probably already know, I feel like it's inescapable everyone talking about how warm it's going to get. Yesterday people were like, it's so lovely, tomorrow it's going to be terrible. (laughs) It's going to be 27, folks. It's not going to be that bad. (laughs) I, I don't know how we feel about that. I
4: am so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty-seven
2: degrees. Do that. I may be minority here, mm. but yeah, no, mm. I
0: am very excited. Yeah. Me Too. Twenty-seven's perfect. Yeah. I perfect know, right? weather. I'm burn. On, <laughs> oh, I <don't laughs> know. Right. Patchy fog. Early in the morning. Oh.
2: We started off with patchy fog. I think mm-hmm. it's probably mostly cleared up by now, mainly around the outer and eastern, southeastern suburbs. Um, clearing to a sunny day. Light winds of fifteen to twenty k's in the afternoon. Um, Tomorrow is going to hit thirty-two degrees. Mm-hmm. so yeah. sorry everyone who needs sunscreen there's <laughs> a lot of people actually i think more of us does. need to wear sunscreen everyone, everyone wear sunscreen. does yeah. wrinkling not the wrinkling's bad mm-hmm. but you know protect your skin health-wise. with
3: your higher uv yeah right apparently they mm-hmm. gonna get out to burn mm-hmm. us yeah. mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. um now as you might remember from the start of the show we were planning to have an interview uh now unfortunately we can't get on to uh lakina Mm. But I just wanted to kind of briefly uh, kind of summarise what the story was about so mm. you can get involved. Obviously, we will be continuing coverage of this next week. Mm. But it's um, about uh, First Nations protection of Debing Creek up in Queensland, which is currently under um, threat from construction companies there, which are seeking to make like a residential property on sacred traditional lands, mm. which include uh, c- c- uh, some cemeteries of kind of First Nations and also hugely... Significant sacred areas. Right. So there's actually um, a Deving Creek sovereignty, sovereignty camp, which you can actually follow on Facebook, uh, following kind of the traditional owners around that area and kind of the sustained protests. So they've been going since January the 27th. So that was just. Yep, if you're interested, you can follow that story along there. And also, I wanted to reference uh, next week, Blockade IMARC.
1: Mm.
3: What is Blockade IMARC? Oh. Well, IMARC is an international mining conference, basically. You've got all of your heads of mining corporations and, you know, pro-coal guys, as I like to call them, mm-hmm. uh, combining together in Melbourne to talk about coal, coal, coal. So, Blockade IMARC obviously is a activist body which is going to be having a blockade, around the exhibition centre, the place where it's being held, from the 28th to the 31st. So just to give you the real details rather than me just waffling, it'll be going from 28th uh, starting at 6 o'clock in the morning to the 31st, uh, ending at 5 o'clock. And it's um, completely free. It's in the Melbourne Convention and Ex- uh, Exhibition Centre. Uh, you can either visit them on Facebook for more information, or they actually have a website. And the website, if you are planning to get involved, might be an idea, because they are hosting um, skill training and kind of organising meetings. So they'll be kind of, you know, just, just giving you a bit of information before you get involved, if you are interested in getting involved. However, we do, you know, it's it's, it's, it's a pretty cool thing, blockading <laughs> People from getting into a room talk more mm-hmm. about coal. It's, of, co- of course, hugely symbolic to um, the trajectory that we're on currently with the climate crisis. So, yeah, definitely that will be coming up, and you'll hear the sting going around 3CR.
1: Um, mm, definitely. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, now, finally, also, um, we thought we'd kind of bring up Recently, uh, the Headspace, which is a national youth medical sorry mental health foundation, has revealed that nearly two thirds of young Australians say that mental health of young people is getting worse. And I wanted to kind of just quickly, with our last five minutes, open this up to conversation, because obviously these statistics are not around actual mental health and mental illness kind of rising statistics, but more about our perception of them. Mm. So currently, 62% of young people have said mental health in Australian uh, young people are getting worse, and females interestingly, are more likely to think this mm-hmm. than males, even though males, obviously, as we know, do lead to some quite uh, statistics right, in, in mental illness. Mm-hmm. So I was just wanting to get your ideas. What do you guys think? Do you think mental health is getting worse?
2: Are we having a conversation about mental health around perceptions or the perception of maybe the, the
4: perceptions of it maybe think, do you think yeah. the awareness is growing then? because
2: I, I don't know if any of us have a particular knowledge yeah, about speak it,
4: so. yeah I think the, this is a really interesting point because it, it is the perception of it mm-hmm. and I think um, because we are gen- literally the first generation to be dealing with these sort of problems it's quite interesting that now we're sort of being able to understand this in a way that it is our perception when you mm-hmm. say
2: these problems can yes. we be more specific? Yes. these. Yes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so um, obviously, mental mental health problems. Um, whether that, whether that, range, I'm not a professional. Mm. Whether that ranges from you know, um, self worth, like, or or whether it goes to bigger. In in, in my opinion, as a as a mm. female, mm. you know, when I go click click onto Instagram and I, mm. you know, I see ah. this. This is how I would perceive it, and the way that I am able to. Um, look through my feed and see someone super attractive and I may, you know, feel like this isn't sort a of self-worth, mm. this is my experience, you know. I I tend to feel like my self-worth is challenged when mm. I look onto social media and Instagram in this in this tense. There's quite Absolutely. many and more this is to, f- mm-hmm. yeah. to... To clarify, mm. I just want to make 100% clear because we are uh-huh. talking about quite a sensitive topic. We are, yes.
2: That, um, that your, your perception is that we're the first generation um, of people to have... Um, our mental health impacted by social media. Yes, mm. yeah, yes, yeah, that's yeah. It. Sorry, I should have made <laughs> that
4: more specific and, quiet. <laughs> yeah.
3: and this is actually so interesting because um, from respondents, 37 people s- said yeah. exactly what you're yeah. saying, which is that social media is kind of impacting this conversation. It is, yeah. Mm. Um, so I was just wondering if you guys... Do you guys have much interaction
4: with social, me- social media? Uh, always. Yeah. Like, it's too much. Like, I'm trying to what cut my screen are we time. What Right now, I'm talking about Instagram. Tw- I mm. Twitter for my news. Facebook for my news. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in my opinion, I know this is... Like, Instagram yeah. especially. I don't and I know that. The... Especially the younger generations as well. Like, you know, we're quite yeah. prone to what that I'm, being a... What
2: I'm interested in is that... um. Well, a couple of different things around social yeah. media, but one is that um, we are having people growing up on, on yeah. social media. It's all the Gen X parents, the, the mm-hmm. people who sort of grew up during the 80s and early mm-hmm. 90s. um sorry, late, late 70s, early 80s, um, yeah. who have kids and are publishing their lives before those kids have like an age of consent. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying necessarily this yeah. is a thing that should be stopped. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking that this is you're something that we watched. should be critically analysing because now you're having millennials yeah. and sort of the older end of Gen-, Gen Z having these conversations about how, you know, they think that um, social media is impacting on their mental health. Yeah. I wonder mm-hmm. about kids who are you know, the on the it. ones after Gen Z. I don't know what you call them, Gen Alpha or whatever. I don't know, but, like, the, the 10-year-olds yeah, and yeah. the 5-year-olds yeah. who are growing up right now having mm. their lives publicised on Instagram – yeah. Like their hand and an iPad when TikTok they're... TikTok or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> influencers, made yeah. into influencers. What does that like, do for will them? Will it be
4: different for them as uh, develop, from us? Yeah. yeah,
2: Will they develop like, strategies of, um, of, of coping that we don't have mm-hmm. yet, or will mm-hmm. they... Their whole mindset. Yeah, so yeah. I, I wonder about that, and I don't know if, if any of us have thoughts on that
3: particular issue.
0: Lois, any concluding thoughts of that? Um, yeah, I think it's definitely interesting that young people are growing up like in their developmental years using technology. What mm-hmm. strikes me when I use YouTube is um, vloggers that are, you know, under yeah. 10 years old. Wow. Scary. I can't imagine doing that when I was a child. Mm. Absolutely. And so kind of concluding that subject, um, you can find it all online,
3: obviously, at Headspace. Another thing I just wanted to quickly highlight that was um, political, social and environmental issues was also something that was uh, raised as a concern. Mm. And it's kind of the first time that that's really become a chunk of a concern. So, the mm. 8 p- 8% of respondents said that that was a massive contributor to mental health conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway, with that kind of... I'm great, Can I <laughs> jump in with the gratefulness
2: <laughs> round? I'm grateful for people doing research in this. Mm. Like, I think, um, you know, it's, it's great for people to sit, sit around and have conversations where we talk about our perceptions. It's mm. really important. Mm. We need to validate um, our own experiences and sort of share and contrast them against each other. But the people mm. who go in and do the research are... Um, they're doing a lot of work that I can't be bothered doing. So um, that's what I'm grateful for. What about you, folks?
3: I'm not something I'm grateful for, but I just wanted to mention, with this conversation on mental health, obviously sensitive, um, you can go to online beyond blue to find out more mm-hmm. information, but also support services such as MindSpot is a free televo- uh, telephone and online service for people who have uh, kind of mental health questions or mental illness questions, um, and they're available on one eight hundred six one double four three four one eight hundred six one double four three four.
4: Mm-hmm. I'm very thankful for those as well. But also um, today I was thinking I'm thankful for WhatsApp and for speaking to people overseas via WhatsApp. And
0: Lois, any you concluding gratitudes? Um, I would like to jump on Will's bandwagon mm-hmm. and um, be thankful for um, researchers mm-hmm. who put in the hard work to give us facts.
2: Well, uh, thank you also to uh, the show that was on before us, Earth Matters. And thank you to Stick Together, which is coming up next.
0: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.